Guys, in the next few Sundays, you and I will be spending time together and not only read uh, the book of Esther, but also study the book of Esther and how God will communicate to us his very plan for your life and my life and even for the world. This afternoon, we'll start digging the book of Esther and get a good grasp of the book. We start with some historical facts related to the story. Then we go to the first two chapters of the book. The book of Esther is very intriguing in many ways. One, it is one of the only two Old Testament books that do not mention the word God anywhere. The second one is the Song of Solomon. Two, the characters excluding the king's name are not found in any archaeological digs, but the chronology of the history is right on target. And three, it is the only book in the Qumran Scrolls that is absent. All of the other books are represented by the artifacts, but the book of Esther. Then sometimes you ask, why is Esther in the Bible? Because God and significant elements of Judaism are not mentioned in the book, its value as a canonical book has been questioned in both Jewish and Christian tradition. The first century rabbis considered the book as authoritative scripture. In early centuries of the Christian church, Israel was accepted almost everywhere in the Western canon, and it attained universal canonical status by the end of the fourth century. Sadly, Martin Luther denounced the book, wishing that it were not in the Bible. But its status as a canonical text within Judaism and Christianity remains secure. The Book of Easter has held an important place in the canon due to its strong testimony to God's providence and protection of his people. Although God's name is not explicitly found, his presence and power are clearly manifested throughout as he provides deliverance for his people through a series of designed coincidences. Even if Jehovah's name is not explicitly associated with those who voluntarily stayed in Babylon instead of returning to their own cities and land, his care for them cannot be questioned. They were still his people and he would protect them from anti-Semitism which sought to exterminate them God is the author of all history, even if he does not sign his name at the bottom of every page. There were two attempts to explain why there is no mention of God in the book. Number one, they say that it may be the result of the author's point of view. The author might have viewed Jewish people who remained in Persia and did not return to the land of Israel as people cut off from the principal blessings of God. Thus, the absence of God's name in the book might 
be a way of expressing God's distance from the exiles. At the same time, the book clearly reveals God's surprising protection of those exiles who remain in Persia. The author may have written the book also in the form of Persian State Chronicle in order to explain to the Persians the Jewish celebration of Purim. Now, as we read the book of Esther, we can find that there are several themes being expressed through all throughout. And let me just uh, give you about five of them. Number one, God's protection of his people even when he appears absent. The great paradox presented by the story is that God is all-powerfully present even where he is most conspicuously absent. The story explores the intriguing interplay between God's providence and human decisions and actions. Number two, God blesses courage and faithfulness in his people, as it will be shown in our study. Number three, God is faithful in his promise. At the time of Easter, the problem of destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of God's people was a theological issue complicated by the problem of the return of some Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. God's people were asking, are we still in covenant with the Lord? How about the Jews who choose to remain? Are they still a part of the promise? Or are they outside of the promise? The book of Easter affirms that God is still faithful to the covenant promises that he made in Mount Sinai, and that those who are living beyond the borders of the promised land are not beyond the reach of God's redemptive protection. Number four, human wickedness is foolish and will not be going unpunished, and we see that. And number five, the book of Easter is an example of the reversal of human destiny that ultimately in the swift of redemptive history was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our sin, we should expect nothing but death, but in the ultimate reversal of eternal destiny, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have been given life. This was also a question about who wrote the book of Esther. Was it written after the fall of the Achaemenid uh, dynasty, during the time of Alexander the Great, or even earlier? And some of the biblical scholars are saying that from the book, it shows that the author does not live in Palestine, but more in the northern province of the Persian realm, and most probably Sosa or Soshan, which is the winter capital of Persia. For though the mode of presenting events does not even once lead the author to mention the name of God, is not caused by any irreligiousness of the author, but rather by the circumstance that he neither wished to depict in person 
whose acts he was narrating as more godly than they really were, nor to place in the whole occurrence, which manifests indeed the dealing of divine providence with the Jewish people, but not in the dealing with the nation of Israel. In other words, he is telling us about the Jews who decide to stay rather than to return to the homeland. More than 150 years from the first wave, during the time of Cyrus the Great, and we know that the exiles were taken out from the homeland during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Also, it says that the author demonstrates first-hand knowledge of the Persian court. He is also familiar with the palace in Sosa and with the character of the Persian king. So he could have been a Jew in exile around the time the events happened. The accuracy of the author's knowledge of Persian custom is confirmed not only by Herodotus, the Greek historian, but also by materials discovered in the Persian archives. The book is sprinkled with Persian names and loan words. No element of Greek words were used to show that it was written after the conquest of the Persian Empire by Alexander the Great. Some Jewish rabbis even ascribed the authorship of the book to Mordecai. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, named Mordecai as the author of the book of Esther. Others are suggesting that it might be Ezra or Nehemiah who wrote the book. But regardless, we know that in every page, God's fingerprint is there. I want us to go back even the history uh, before the time of Esther. We know that in 606, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah and took all the Israelites as exiles. And Nebuchadnezzar ruled about 70 years. Then after that, Cyrus the Great conquered. The great conqueror of the known world, he defeated the early Babylonian Empire and conquered Judah and destroyed the temple also in Jerusalem. And we know that during uh, the first wave of exile, Daniel and his two friends were included. That was, again, 606, more than 100 years before the time of Esther. Cyrus the Great was named in the prophecy of Isaiah more than 100 years before it happened, before his conquest. And it's very interesting that even years before that, we see the hand of God already directing history for the sake of his chosen people. Now, as prophesied, the Israelites were in exile for 70 years. And exactly also 70 years after, Cyrus came and conquered. 
And he was the first one who sent the first wave of Israelis to go back to Judah, or particularly to Jerusalem, to start rebuilding the temple. And there was Cambyses, the uh, next emperor. He didn't rule very, uh, for very long. He only ruled about maybe seven years. And he was he's the one who stopped temporarily the rebuilding of the temple. And there was Darius, who ruled between 521 to 485 BC. And Darius is the father of Sursus, who's the king during Israel's time. All we know about Darius was that he wanted to conquer Greece. And you and I know about the 300 Spartans who tried to protect uh, Athens. We know that he almost defeated the 300, but, I mean, uh, he almost was defeated by the 300, but because of the betrayal of a Spartan, he defeated the 300 Spartans. But at the same time, Darius had a very humiliating defeat at the Battle of Marathon. And when Xerxes came into the picture, he wanted to avenge the loss of his father. And that's where, in many ways, the chapter one is coming into the picture. I like uh, how the NIV, uh, in a way, rendered the first verse. The NIV rendered it as, this is what happened during the time of Circus. The Circus who rolled over 127 provinces stretching from India, also Pakistan, to Kosh or Egypt. So it was a big empire. But they were not able to conquer Greece at that point in time. So um, we can find here that Circus did have a big party for about 160, 180 days. And who were in the party? They were the military officers and officials of his government. And Israel never said anything about the military strategic planning, but in history it says Herodotus says that during the time that was when Xerxes was planning to invade Greece. That was the third year of his role. So there was about a span of four years before Easter came into the picture. But as we look at the chapter first chapter especially, we can find the splendor of the empire of Persia. We can find the greatness of the empire of Persia. 
The city of the banquet, as described, was very opulent and pompous. And you see the splendor of the kingdom. There was wealth, splendor, and extravagance in the empire as if it will, as if it will not last. The book does not give the reason for the banquet, but again, as mentioned, the history says, according to Herodotus, sources with his military were planning a strategic way to invade Greece. And the word of God says that the presence of wine was sumptuous. There was no restriction on how much you can drink. Sky's the limit. Then at the same time, also after that, there was a seven-day banquet where all the residents of Sosa were invited. And that also was the time that Vasti had also her own banquet with women. Again, chapter one gives us the beauty and the grandeur of the palace in Sosa. And it was described that Sosa was the winter capital of Persia. Persepolis was really mainly the capital of Persia. While Vasi was having her own party and King Cyrus was having also the other one, Cyrus, in his drunkenness, he was under the influence of alcohol, wanted to show not only the inanimate splendor or glory of his uh, kingdom, but he wanted to show the beauty of his queen. So he asked seven eunuchs to go and fetch Vasti and bring him to the big party. I ask, why were seven eunuchs needed to bring Vasti? The, the only picture that came to my mind was that when they were going to bring Vasti, they have to put Vasti in a royal chair and carry her to the banquet. But what happened? Vasti refused. King Azairos or Xerxes. Xerxes was very furious and he was described to be burned with anger. It was insubordination on the part of Vasti and it was a public embarrassment before everyone in the kingdom. The queen refusing disobeying the king. So what Xerxes uh, did was he asked for advice. What should he do with Vasti? And from what we know, his counselors who were close to him told him what, that what Vasti did was a deep display of defiance, uh, at the same time, that's going to put the king in shame. 
So what was the advice? They said, vanish Basti from the throne for good. And issue an edict to all of the lands that all women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. And then that King Hazairo should choose somebody who is better than Vasti. And one or another, King Xerxes agreed with it. He sealed an edict and sent them all the parts of the kingdom, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler over her, his own household. And the law was distributed and written in the native language. In other words, they made it sure that everyone understood what the law was about. That was the end of Vasti. And we can see how God, in his own way, working in the matters of men, Easter came into the picture. But again, in, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it's very interesting how uh, the uh, writer described the intermission in many ways. The writer said, after these things, after these things, what things was he talking about? Basically, he was, the writer was talking about the invasion of Greece. He did invade Greece, and you know what happened? He lost. He lost in the battle of Salamis and Plataea. And Herodotus described so he's just very irrational in his anger. And Herodotus described that when they built a bridge in Helipont for the soldiers to cross over, there was a storm, and the storm destroyed the bridge. And you know what he did? He beheaded the engineers who built the bridge. And not only that, irrationally he asked his soldiers to beat the waves to the point, according to Herodotus, that he tried to chain the waves by sinking few feeders in the ocean. That's how irrationally angry Jesus was at the time. So he came, what, defeated, not only disappointed, but also, not just embarrassed, but at the same time it says that that's when the Achaemenid dynasty began to slowly go down. Then he asked for advice. I like uh, what uh, Azairosa did. He asked for advice. And what is the advice? They told him that he can search for another queen. And uh, Josephus, in his uh, antiquities, uh, mentioned that they found 400 beautiful women in the empire to choose from. 
and of the 400, Esther was included. And there was a question whether the 400 women uh, voluntarily, in a way, come into the picture and ask, yeah, I'm willing to do it. But uh, some of the uh, students say that they were forced because there was an edict, there was a law that all the beautiful young women will have to go and stay in the harem. But the question at this point, who, who is Esther? In verse 5 to 8 of chapter 2, uh, she was described as the younger cousin of Mordecai. Apparently, Esther's father was the uncle of Mordecai. And his parents died while in her parents died while in exile. And the word of God described that Mordecai adopted Esther, the cousin, like uh, his own daughter. And there was a question whether Mordecai or Esther was a part of the first wave of exiles. And many say that that should have happened because if he was a part of the first exile, you know how old would Mordecai be? He might be a hundred or more years old. And Esther might be about 80 years old. See, he cannot be, she cannot be a part of the harem. The, uh, the word of God, or uh, some of the uh, historians said that at that time, Mordecai was probably between 30 to 40 years old and Israel about 20 years old. So what you find here that Israel and Mordecai were descendants of Kish, who was a part of the first wave of exiles. And if you and I can remember who Kish was, he was, what, related to King Saul. So Joseph was even described Israel as a royalty, being a descendant of Saul. According to verse uh, 20 of chapter 2, Israel obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought by him. So one thing that we can find who Israel was is that he was a compliant and obedient woman. He followed what Mordecai told her to do. And I believe that that very character also elevated her above the other women while she was in the harem. Isher, in person name, means star, the goddess of beauty. But at the same time, she also has a Jewish name, Hadashah, um, meaning myrtle. It's a plant, a fragrant plant. In fact, there was a one uh, commentator who said that of all the characters uh, in the book of Esther, she's the only woman that had been mentioned with two names, Hadassah and Esther. Esther is described as a woman with a lovely 
figure and beautiful. From, but from what we have seen, how the way he was described, Israel apparently was not only physically beautiful, but she was also beautiful in character. But there's one thing that Israel didn't say. She never mentioned who she came from, what nationality she came from. And it was under the instruction of Mordecai. Perhaps you and I may ask why. Of course, when I really answer that, in the next few chapters, one of us will tell us why. She didn't give her nationality. Then let's try to examine the conduct of Israel in, in the harem. You know, the harem has basically uh, two, in a way, divisions. The first division was where the 400 women were being uh, placed, and the second division was where the concubines of the king were placed. So how was uh, Esther behaving when, he was, when she was in the harem? The word of God says that she placed Higai, who is the supervisor, and she won his heart that she received special attention and care, including food. And she was described to be moved into the best place in the harem. And she received a beauty treatment and learned the royal court etiquette for one year together with the other 399 women. So Isra and, and the other women were in the harem for about one year. I'm, I think maybe you, you ladies may like it. Why? Because for one year, what, what, what you did was just to beautify yourself. But at the same time, learn also how they should behave themselves or conduct themselves when they are with a king. When it was Esther's turn to see the king, she was described that she didn't ask for anything unlike what the other women were doing. Whatever he guy suggested to her, that's what she did. I'm not sure if you can find something interesting there, but one thing I think we can, we can find is that Esther not only found favor in Haggai, but Esther also knew that Haggai knew the king more than anyone else, what he likes with his women. And Esther followed the suggestion of Haggai. But at the same time, we can find that Mordecai didn't rest. The word of God says that Mordecai was what, walking back and forth to know about the whereabouts of Israel, how Israel was doing in the harem, how she was behaving. So again, we can, we can find here that Mordecai and Israel in many ways were together 
in this point in time. At this point, none of them, the both of them never knew exactly what's going to happen. Personally, I think that they may not know exactly what was the plan of God for them at the time. But we know that God put in place things. And remember that also that before that, we can always hear about prophecies. But during this time, there was no prophet talking about what's going to happen. And Haggai and Israel were just like you and me. They were just ordinary exiles coming from the land of Israel. So after one year, uh, it's described that one by one the women went to see King Ahasuerus or Xerxes. And that's where the king will have to decide who among the 400 will be the queen. In the year 478 BC, Esther became the queen of Persia. It was described that the night that he went to see the king, the king was attracted to Esther more than any other women, that she won his approval more than the other women and she was crowned as queen. There was a banquet, and the king proclaimed it as a holiday for the whole kingdom, to the point that the king was even very generous to the provinces, giving reliefs and gifts. According to ESV, he granted remission of the taxes and gave gifts with royal generosity. And the chapter went on and told us about Mordecai. Apparently, because of Israel's relationship with Mordecai, Mordecai was also given a better job. He was at the king's gate. The king's gate is basically the, the place where judicial processes or work are being done. And Mordecai was there. And the word of God says that Mordecai overheard the two people planning or talking about assassinating the king. And what he did, he reported this thing to Esther. And Esther went to see the king and told him about it. And he used... Mordecai as the source of the news. And there was an investigation. And the plotters asked what the of God says, they were hanged. That was the end of chapter 2. In many ways, we say, what can we learn from there? Let me just uh, share to you some comments that I read. One uh, commentator said that, you know what? When Vasi refused uh, the king, they say that there was a start of the liberation of women. 
<laughs> because of Vasti, you know, the, the, the king or the advisor said that because of Vasti, Vasti did, the women, the wives, can do the same thing to their husbands. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was stopped by, by the edict. But let me just uh, show to you some of the impressions that I have and some conclusions. In my study of the book and research of the articles and commentaries on Easter, Isra and Nehemiah, I found that the events happening during Easter's time were under the divine guidance of God. It reminds me of how God worked in the Exodus during Moses' time. God knows that the Pharaoh will be refusing them to go. And in his refusal, the Almighty God shows Pharaoh that he was more powerful than anyone. And God was working in the lives of his chosen people, showing them the fulfillment of his promise. In our study of Easter, as we slowly work through the book, we will discover the providence and sovereignty of God in the lives of his people. If there's anything that we can find also in this uh, book, the author, in some ways, according to one of the uh, commentators, Dei Carson, said that there was some kind of moral ambig ambiguity when he presented the story of Esther. What he meant by that, you know, when Esther was in the harem, what happened? Esther didn't refuse anything. He said that unlike what Daniel and his three friends did when they were taken to Nebuchadnezzar's palace, Daniel refused to eat and asked the supervisor that be, let them eat what they're eating. Uh, in Israel, the kosher. But uh, in, in, in Israel, we can find that Israel didn't really refuse anything. To the point that some of the communities were asking also, you know, here Israel was involved having a relationship with a heathen. Now there are things that many times you can understand at this point. But I think as we go through with the, uh, with the book, we'll be able to understand why. But there can be some questions in our mind. At the same time, Israel also didn't identify herself. Of course, Israel and Mordecai, I would say, were born in exile. And in some ways, some people will say, you know what? Maybe they have kind of accepted some of the culture during their time. That probably they may be behaving this way. Can be a good discussion, but we'll see how things will be. Now I see God working in every chapter and page of the book. God is showing that his presence and guidance can never be negated, even 
His name is not mentioned in the book. His promises can never be denied to his chosen people as he promised. His plan will always be fulfilled. You know what? Looking, looking at Easter, what would have happened if Easter didn't become the queen of Persia? Remember, Easter was still alive when Israel went back to Jerusalem. And Israel was also was alive when Nehemiah started rebuilding the wall. Easter seems making it possible for the work of Nehemiah her marriage to the king must have given the Jews great prestige. Without her, Jerusalem might not have been rebuilt. Nehemiah rebuilt the wall during the time of Artaxerxes. That was the one who succeeded Xerxes. And Israel was still the queen, and he had the influence to the king to complete the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And one fact. A question that came to my mind. If the Almighty God allowed the annihilation of his people, particularly those who decided to stay in exile in places other than Judah or Jerusalem, would it affect the fulfillment with the promised birth and coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, Haley's Bible Handbook, this is what I have found, wrote that if the Hebrew nation had been entirely wiped out, of existence 500 years before it brought Christ into the world, that have might made some difference in the destiny of mankind. No Hebrew nation, no Messiah, and no Messiah, a lost world. So we can find here that God in his own way chose somebody to be the instrument in fulfilling his overall plan. Not only saving the nation of Israel, but even also fulfilling the plan of sending the Messiah 500 years after. I'm trying to make it personal. Do we believe that our lives are in God's work to fulfill his plan through you and me? Do you think that your life and my life, the way we are living now, are we aligned to fulfill his plans for us? I think it's a good question that you and I may have to answer. For one thing, that reminds me of Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Before Christ went up to heaven, he had this command to, to the disciples. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. We are part of that plan. How are we doing as a fellowship and as individuals? Now let us continue in studying the lives of Israel and Mordecai in the next few Sundays and discover how God in his infinite knowledge 
and power intervenes in the activities of man to fulfill his will in the lives of his chosen people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your plan is always alive. We thank you, Lord, that you use ordinary men and women for your plan. We thank you, Lord, that even as we go through the work of Israel, that you help us understand how your plans were fulfilled through the life of Israel and Mordecai. Lord, I do pray that you give us the desire to know you more and study more about your word and find applications in our own lives. And Lord, thank you again because your word is active and it's going to change our heart through the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.